Good morning. Good morning. Anyone? Good morning. Thank you, Paula. Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds for February 18th. 2015. Uh, I, um, we're in the midst of February and we'll have Dr. Linda Grant joining us next week for a school health discussion, dialogue between the medical and educational homes. You know, I, I always like to share unsolicited compliments. So last week, uh, last week we heard uh, a compliment. Dan Jensen, many of you know, as our chief operating officer and a friend of Chad and one of his wife spent some time volunteering in the ICN recently. And Dan, who raves about us frequently, was raving about how she would come home and speak glowingly about the nursing care and the nurses in the ICN. And she is not one to, um, to give faint praise. She pretty often comes back and tells him the areas in the hospital that are not performing so well that he appreciates hearing about. But for those of you who might be in and around the ICN today, um, some props to our, our hardworking nurses, as we already know the case to be. So this is fun. I don't need a CV necessarily this morning uh, to welcome today's Grand Round speaker. Uh, Dr. Nina Sandloud is a graduate of McGill University undergraduate as well as the Faculty of Medicine in 1996. Uh, she completed an internship in pediatrics at Montreal Children's Hospital and finished her residency here at CHAD, waiting for me for a year to catch up, and subsequently did the same for fellowship at Boston Children's Hospital in Developmental Behavioral Pediatrics, where in that extra year she gained extra uh, expertise and training with Dr. Richard Ferber in the Pediatric Sleep Medicine Center, one of the founding fathers of pediatric sleep medicine. And so uh, Nina is able today to come and teach us about um, why we didn't wake up our son this morning when she came in for Grand Rounds. <laughs> Okay, so um, so the title of the talk is a little bit of a take on what we used to think when our um, our now teenager was a baby that you should never wake a sleeping baby, but thought that as he got older that that would change. But in fact, the more we learn about sleep, the more we know that that is not true. So I have nothing to disclose except for that I do have a teen and a tween at home, and so um, I have a vested interest in this topic. Um, so uh, for those of you who don't know the policy statement um, to which I'm referring, um, last August of 2014, the American Academy of Pediatrics uh, recommended that middle and high school school um, schools delay the start of class to 8.30 a.m. or later. Um, and so this is starting to receive a little bit more press. Um, there was even an article in the Valley News this Monday about a recent study looking at uh, sleep amounts of uh, adolescents, and we'll talk a little bit more about some of the findings in that study. So this is what I'm talking about, um, that teens will sleep and sleep and sleep and then rush out the door in the morning having a um, full and complete breakfast on their way to a very early uh, beginning of the school day. So what we're going to talk a little bit about today is to review a little bit about sleep regulation and basic sleep architecture so that you know where we're starting from, and then to talk about the sleep patterns in adolescence. Um, we'll talk about some of the consequences of inadequate sleep and why this is a big problem, um, and then we'll just touch on a little bit about some common sleep disorders in adolescence. 
Okay, so let's do a bit of a review of sleep cycles. Um, so when we talk about sleep, we talk about two types of sleep. There's non-REM sleep um, and then REM sleep. And non-REM sleep, um, we used to talk about four stages. Um, now they've collapsed it down to three. Um, the first stage is a very light sleep where you're sort of going back and forth between waking and sleeping. And if someone walked into the room, you'd quickly uh, jump up. Um, stage two is really the beginning of real sleep. Um, your uh, breathing starts to slow. Your blood pressure starts to go down. Um, there are uh, sleep spindles and K-complexes, which um, make us be able to read this on an um, EEG. Stage three and four, which have collapsed into just stage three, is the deeper sleep. So there's more high voltage waves, and um, this is when it's really hard to be woken up. Uh, this is what we think of sort of as a more restorative sleep. And so if we look at um, the sleep cycles, um, this is um, an EEG when you're awake. Um, this is the stage one sleep. And you can see that it actually does look fairly similar to the wakeful stage. And that's why it's so easy to um, wake up. Um, the stage um, two sleep, we've got these um, sleep spindles or bursts of activity um, before you then move into sort of this deeper sleep. Um, that's stage three and four sleep. You can see that the REM sleep looks a little bit different again. It's much more active. Um, and so during this stage, you have sort of desynchronized activity that's more random than recorded during non-REM sleep. And this is the time when we think of um, REM, which stands for rapid eye movements, that they're bursts of rapid eye movements. And so the eyes kind of dart back and forth and up and down um, during this stage. Um, like during the wakeful time, those eye movements are um, together. So both eyes move to the right, both eyes move to the left, up and down. Um, we don't actually have a good knowledge of why the eyes move a lot during um, REM sleep. Uh, there's some theory that it has to do with dreaming and sort of visualizing what you're dreaming, um, but there's nothing that actually tells us for certain that that's what's going on. So during sleep, people experience repeated cycles of non-REM and REM sleep, beginning with a non-REM phase. So we start at stage one, we move our way through, although it doesn't stay as sort of one, two, three, four REM uh, through the night. Um, the cycles last approximately 90 to 110 minutes, and they're repeated four to six times per night. As the night progresses, the amount of kind of deep non-REM sleep decreases and the amount of REM sleep increases. And so that's important when we think about sort of a shortened night what we're kind of cutting off in terms of sleep. So if we look at sort of um, this graph that kind of goes through the night, what you can see is at the beginning of the night, we have a lot of this deep sleep. Um, and then we end with some of that deep sleep again. In the middle is when we have this sort of bigger REM um, stages of sleep, these sort of hatched marks. Um, at the very beginning of the night, when you have these kind of deep sleeps, sometimes you'll have, this is where you might have uh, um, a parasomnia or an arousal that would be um, what you would see with sleepwalking or night terrors. And so they are, um, happen at a pretty predictable stage because they're part of that kind of deep sleep that we see at the beginning of the night. Sometimes we'll have some wakenings <laughs> during the REM period where it's a little harder to fall back asleep. Um, sort of 2 o'clock in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning are when we might see those awakenings. Um, during lighter sleep. So <clears throat> what helps us sort of fall asleep and wake up during the day? Um, and we do actually have a good sense of the kind of modulation of sleep and wakefulness. Um, the two best um, known systems are the sleep homeostatic system and the intrinsic circadian timekeeping system. Um, and even though we can think of these two systems independently, um, we also know that they actually work together to help us with sleep, so they interact. 
So sleep homeostasis is that the brain keeps track of each hour of sleep and wakefulness, and then it causes a drive for sleep. So the longer we've been awake, um, the stronger the desire and need to sleep becomes, and the greater the likelihood of falling asleep. The longer we've been asleep, the more pressure to sleep dissipates, and the greater the likelihood of awakening. Now, this is important when we think of sort of both being overtired and catching up on sleep, but also the fact that we can't sort of bank sleep. We can't sort of say, well, I'm going to have a really tough week coming up. I better get some extra sleep over the weekend. Your body just isn't able to do that. Once you're full of sleep, you can't get extra sleep. And so if you're sleeping more, it means that you're kind of behind on sleep rather than being able to sort of catch up. Uh, the circadian system is uh, centered in the suprachiasmic nucleus in the hypothalamus. Um, and the most important hormones that are affected by the circadian clock, at least in far, insofar as sleep is concerned, is melatonin, which is produced in the pineal gland, and cortisol, which is produced in the adrenal gland. And the circadian clock is sort of really responsible for all of our patterns of, of sleep and wakefulness, as well as sort of feeding, alertness, body temperature, um, brainwave activities, hormone activities. So it has sort of really important functions. Um, humans are diurnal, so we're up during the day and asleep at night. Um, and, uh, and that has to do with our circadian clock. So what the clock uses is, um, is the light dark and dark light um, phases. So those are called our zeitgebers, those things that sort of help us adjust to the time. And we use environmental stimuli to kind of keep us on track. Now, that's important as we come to think about kind of what are some things that affect our sleep um, later in the talk, because um, we might be sort of messing with that system a little bit in terms of us knowing when it is time to fall asleep and when it's time to wake up. So this looks a little bit at sort of how the patterns of melatonin work. Um, so as you can see, there's really low levels of melatonin during the day. So melatonin is almost not produced at all during the day. It starts to go on an upslope kind of in the early evening. Um, this is called the DLMO, the dim light melatonin onset. Um, and it can be measured. Um, and then the levels um, peak in the middle of the night. Um, this coincides with when our core body temperature decreases the most. So around 4 o'clock in the morning, our body temperature is at the lowest, our melatonin is at the highest, and that's the sort of biggest drive for sleep right at that hour. If then melatonin then drops um, pretty precipitously, um, and that's called the DLM off, or dim light melatonin <laughs> offset um, in the morning. So, um, so let's talk a little bit about kind of what we're seeing in sleep patterns in adolescents. So I know this is kind of a busy slide, but it's just to give you an idea. So this comes from the 2006 um, National Sleep Foundation Sleep Poll, um, where it looked at sleep patterns of uh, kids in 6th through 12th grade. Um, and the things, and so this top half are uh, school nights, this is weekend nights. And there are kind of two things that we're going to look at when we're looking at sort of patterns of sleep over time. One is, if you can see, sort of in sixth grade, kids go to sleep around 9.25 as an average. Um, by sort of 11th to 12th grade, they're going to sleep sort of more around 11. And so what happens during that time is that they're going from eight and a half hours of sleep per night to a little less than seven hours of sleep per night. The other thing to notice is what happens between weekends um, and weekdays in terms of the difference between how much sleep you're getting. Um, and so um, younger, um, sort of tween age, have a little bit of a difference, less than an hour. But by the time they get into sort of later adolescence, they're getting closer to two hours of a difference um, between kind of weekend nights and uh, weekday nights. And that can have big effects on uh, one circadian clock and rhythms of sleep as well. 
So, um, so this is um, some newer data, actually. This is um, uh, what I was referring to at the beginning of, that uh, was referred to in an article at the, in the Valley News on Monday. It's a study coming out in next month's um, pediatrics uh, that is part of the Monitoring uh, the Future study, which is a huge study, 272,000 um, adolescents and looking at a variety of different uh, features, sleep being one of them. This is a little bit of a hard um, question because it's asked a little bit backwards, but it's the percentage of adolescents who report less than seven hours of sleep per night. And what you can see is, um, so we have age across the bottom, what you can see is sort of the number um, sort of decreases over time steadily. So the number of, of adolescents who report getting more than seven hours of sleep a night has decreased over time. The other thing that's important is that what this graph also shows is sort of by year. And so this was sort of 1991. Um, and this is 2011, 2012. And what you're seeing is that um, that not only does it reduce over time, but that over the past several 10 years, the amount of sleep that uh, teenagers are receiving is less and less and less. Um, this uh, graph shows the percentage that feel that they have are receiving adequate sleep. And you can see that those numbers are both decreasing over time as kids get older, but also decreasing over time over the past 10 years. And so. Um, the title of this study is the um, Great Sleep Recession, um, and so that um, so that there's a really big sort of dip in terms of the amount of sleep that um, that adolescents are getting over time. So why do we think that is? So the first thing is to talk about sort of how much sleep do adolescents need? So do they really need more than that seven? Are they similar to adults in terms of their sleep needs? Um, and the answer is no. So there have been a lot of really good studies. Um, uh, Kaskagan is, uh, is someone who's done a lot of research, um, both in the lab and then in somewhat naturalistic settings, looking at sleep needs of adolescents. And so what um, they have is this great um, teen sleepaway camp, um, where they are able to really control bedtime and wake-up time for several days in a row. And so what they'll do is they'll keep them in a controlled setting where they go to bed um, and wake up on a schedule so that they have 10-hour nights. So we know they're not very sleep-deprived. And then they move them to a lab, um, and they put them in, um, in a dark setting for much longer periods of time where they're allowed to sleep for um, longer periods of time and they monitor them over a few days doing sort of sleep studies looking at their EEGs and really being able to monitor how much sleep they're getting. And so the first study looked at um, if they had a 10-hour sleep schedule um, for 10 to 14 nights, and then they put them into the lab for three consecutive nights. The first night, they slept 12 and a half hours. Um, but then even by the third night, they're sleeping 10 hours. And so that gives us an idea of you know, if you're all the way caught up on sleep and left to your own devices, how long will you sleep? And it looks like 10 hours. There have been other sort of more longitudinal studies um, that have shown that with a bedtime of um, 10 and a wake-up time of 8 over a steady amount of time um, across the age span. So it's not that 10-year-olds need much more sleep than 17-year-olds. They'll sleep an average of, average of nine and a half hours a night. And so the sleep needs are, are real in this age group. And so thinking that they can get by on seven hours of sleep really is not true. Um, so then what happens? So why do they end up having much less sleep? So we know that there's... Um, Lots of environmental factors, and we'll talk about that a little bit in a little bit. But the first thing is that there are uh, significant biological factors that are sort of driving the decreased um, amount of sleep that they're getting. Um, the first thing is uh, in terms of the circadian timing system. So there's a phase delay in association with puberty. And what that means is that DLMO, the um, graph that I showed you at the beginning, pushes over. And so that the melatonin uh, onset of the increase happens two, one and a half to two hours later um, in adolescence. And not just 
by age, but actually by pubertal stage. And so when they look at Tanner staging um, of kids who are 12, versus kids who are sort of older, and then even within the same age. So if they look, so there is one study looking at 12-year-old uh, uh, sixth graders, and those who are more mature physically actually started to show more of an adolescent pattern of sleep compared to those who are, who are sort of more immature. And so it's not just um, that they're feeling older and want to go to bed later, but that actually um, it's related to, the, to puberty itself. Now, in some ways, that makes a lot of sense if we think of uh, a lot of hormonal changes that happen during puberty and that these are hormones that are being excreted by the body. <clears throat> the same is true of the homeostatic system, and so that that pressure accumulation of feeling sleepy after a certain amount of wakefulness starts to get pushback as well. Um, and that is associated with tanner staging as well. And so if we sort of deprive them of sleep, uh, further along in puberty, adolescents uh, don't feel tired as early as uh, earlier in puberty. And so that that pressure to sleep builds faster. And so there's some thoughts that the actual in intrinsic clock lengthens during this time. And that even though we know that the um, the 24.2-hour clock is a cycle that adults work on. Um, during adolescence, the thought is that that actually has been lengthened. And so that's the reason why, even though they have the same number of sleep needs, they can stay awake longer before they get tired again. So the circadian timing system undergoes a phase delay. One aspect, the dissipation of sleep homeostatic pressure does not change until late adolescence when it shows evidence of slowing, so that they don't um, get to that point until later in adolescence. And so that's why we don't really see that big shift in terms of when they fall asleep until sort of more like 11th or 12th grade. Um, and that, that uh, accumulation of sleep homeostatic pressure is closed during puberty. So after puberty, actually, this sort of ends. And so that it's not that they're just moving to sort of a more adult sleep pattern. This is something that's specific to puberty. And that after puberty, that sleep homeostatic pressure starts to close again, where um, you start to feel tired sooner after being awake. So, um, so this is sort of a description of how a lot of uh, adolescents feel during this time. So um, if you can't read it, it says, can't sleep, can't stay awake, can't sleep, can't stay awake, can't sleep, um, so that the kind of schedule that we're putting on adolescents maybe doesn't necessarily reflect the schedule that their bodies are feeling. Um, and then she says, ever feel as though you were born on the wrong side of the planet? And then her friend says, you were snoring in math again, by the way. Um, and so this is important. So what's happening to them as they go to school? So we know that that's not the whole story. So one is the pressures um, biologically, but then there are a lot of psychosocial um, factors that affect sleep pattern. So electronic media and sleep, um, caffeine, and school start times. So um, in that same 2006 poll, um, almost all adolescents had at least one media electronic device in their bedroom. Um, about 40 to 50% had uh, four or more. And so what we're talking about are TVs, video games, telephones, iPods. Um, Several studies have demonstrated that ex electronic exposure in the evening disrupts sleep. And not just in the sort of one obvious way that we think about that they're sitting and using the device and that's not uh, allowing them to fall asleep. But actually, so that's one. You're busy kind of texting with a friend and you're not going to sleep. Um, but also, actually, the possible um, that the light produced by electronic devices may disrupt the circadian rhythms by suppressing melatonin. So as we talked about at the beginning, we use the light and dark um, to tell us when we're supposed to fall asleep. And so we might be disrupting that. Um, 
And so there are actually all sorts of interesting studies going on changing the frequency of the light that the devices are emitting, which um, really probably isn't addressing the bigger part of the problem. Um, this may also cause increased sleep disrupting mental, emotional, and physiologic arousal. So the things that happen between peers during these discussions can be emotionally upsetting. Um, there are all sorts of interesting studies looking at sort of video game play in the evening compared to other kinds of electronic devices. Um, and so playing sort of violent video games is associated with um, not just not going to sleep and being sort of emotionally aroused, but actually um, it changes the, uh, your um, sleep pattern. So it seems like kids who play violent, sort of they looked at shooting games um, uh, before bed had less uh, stage three and stage four sleep. So it actually alters your um, sleep patterns, which makes you more tired, as we talked about, that that's very restorative sleep. So caffeine is another uh, interesting uh, sleep disruptor. And as we see more and more uh, and younger and younger kids hanging out at Starbucks and having um, caffeine through the day as well as kind of sodas and other things, um, there are a lot of negative um, impacts of caffeine on sleep, um, leads to a shorter sleep duration, um, increased sleep onset latency, um, increased wake time after sleep onset. So even after you fall asleep, you have more sort of disrupted sleep where you wake more often. Um, and increased daytime sleepiness. So caffeine reduces the amount of time spent in slow wave or deep sleep, and so you have um, less good quality sleep. Um, and there have been actually several recent studies that show increased caffeine consumption correlated uh, with decreased academic achievement. And so what happens is that you can get into this really negative spiral where you feel a little sleepy and you drink some caffeine uh, or eat some chocolate that has a, or a lot of chocolate, mostly drinking, um, and then you don't have as good quality sleep. It takes you longer to fall asleep. Your quality of your sleep isn't as good. You wake up feeling sleepy, um, and then you have more caffeine. And so you end up in this cycle where you're drinking more and more caffeine. There have also been some interesting uh, recent studies that look at um, the younger age at starting caffeine and the association with other sort of negative behaviors like cigarette smoking that also are sleep disruptive. Um, there uh, was one study that showed that the greater caffeine consumption was more associated with multitasking using multiple electronic media devices at once, although the directionality of some of those studies is a little hard. So some may, might be some of those kids that are trying to do many things at once that are sort of using caffeine to help them in their idea um, do that, but um, instead it sort of ends up being more disruptive. Um, and then another one um, that is the focus of that policy statement is school start times. So numerous studies have demonstrated that early start times impede middle and high school students from getting sufficient sleep. So 43% of public high schools start before 8, um, and delaying school start times results in a substantive increase in the average sleep duration as well as other significant positive outcomes. And so there have been a few school systems that have started to do this, and so there's a growing body of evidence that shows us um, that, um, that when they start school later, kids do get up later, um, and they have a more total sleep time on school nights. And so some of the sort of arguments against it is, well, it's just going to let the kids stay up later, and they're still only going to get a short amount of sleep. But actually, the studies haven't borne that out, um, because that we know that part of the drive to the decreased sleep is biological. Um, they're still going to feel sleepy. And so the idea is that they actually end up going to sleep at a similar time but wake up later. Um, there's less daytime sleepiness, less tardiness, improved attendance, uh, fewer attention and concentration difficulties, and a better academic performance. 
And so some of the school systems that have done this have shown um, improved GPAs and um, improved results on uh, standardized testing. So I don't know if people know what around the, the school start times in this area. They're pretty varied. Um, it's interesting. None of the schools um, in the upper valley, so I looked at Thetford, Sharon, Hanover, Lebanon, um, Hartford, um, they all have different times. And uh, the best is Sharon Academy, which starts at 8.15. Uh, Hanover comes in second at, at 8. Uh, Lebanon and Thetford are pretty um, early, so um, Thetford 7.27, um, and Lebanon 7.30, both are high school and middle school. Um, and Hartford is 7.45, except Wednesdays they start at 8.15, which um, probably is more sleep disruptive than helpful. <laughs> So, um, so there are lots of consequences of insufficient sleep. And so we talked a little bit about learning and attention, but, um, but there are other um, consequences as well. Um, mood disturbances, obesity risks, and mood disturbances actually could be both on the uh, causing insufficient sleep and consequences of insufficient sleep list, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, and uh, some uh, entry studies about dry, drowsy driving um, that should make us all a little nervous. Uh, so sleep loss and mood. So it's been long recognized that it's a kind of bi-directional uh, relationship, mood disorders and sleep problems. So people who have mood disorders tend to have poor sleep. People with poor sleep are increased risk of mood uh, disorders. Um, specific association between insomnia and depression. And studies um, that uh, have shown that there's an improved treatment of depression when you address the insomnia, sort of separate from um, the treating the depression itself. And they're even um, in adults, although they're just starting to do these studies in um, adolescents, uh, sleep study changes in people with depression, and so that there's a real change in the quality of your sleep. Um, so this is another longitudinal adolescent health study um, that showed that symptoms of possible insomnia, so they didn't have a specific diagnosis of insomnia, but showed some symptoms associated with insomnia, so trouble sleeping and morning tiredness, predicted risky behaviors, even after controlling for depressive symptoms. <coughs> so um, drinking and driving, smoking and delinquency are all associated with um, increased difficulties sleeping. Um, adolescent sleep-related um, parameters found significantly associated with anxiety, depression, and withdrawal. Um, and sleeping less than eight hours per night in someone with a uh, diagnosis of depression is associated with an almost threefold increased risk of suicide attempts. So it has a pretty profound impact. What's interesting about this study is actually they also looked at um, sleep in the parents. And in parents who sleep less than eight hours a night, uh, there was also an increased risk of suicidal ideation in adolescents. And so, you know, whether that's a biological risk or a genetic risk, environmental risk, or something sort of all wrapped up in those features together is important. And so getting a good sense of what's going on in the family and the schedule of the family is important as well. So there have been sort of more and more um, studies recently talking about insufficient sleep and obesity risk. Um, there's a lot of evidence that short sleep duration in both adults and children um, leads to an increased risk of obesity, and this obviously has long-range health implications. And there are some postulated mechanisms of why this is. Um, decreased sleep leads to alterations in metabolic profiles, so insulin, ghrelin, leptin, and cortisol um, are all... Um, changed with sleep loss, um, which leads to insulin resistance, increased sympathetic nervous system activity, and increased hunger and decreased satiety. So in studies where they sleep-restricted um, subjects, they consume more calories, they exercise less, they consumed a higher percentage of calories from fat. Um, so this can be sort of um, 
mimicked in a in lab setting. Um, and then there have been lots of studies that have looked at um, just straight out, you know, each hour of sleep lost, the odds of being obese increased by 80%. And there does seem to be a dose-response inverse relationship between weight and sleep, so that the odd ratio of overweight increased with decreased sleep duration. Um, and this increased risk is equivalent to or higher than other factors that we know are strongly correlated with obesity, including uh, parental obesity and TV viewing, sort of independent of those factors. So um, we also know that sleep um, helps us consolidate our learning, um, and so uh, that there's specific research looking at different aspects of sleep and what is lost in different sleeps and how it impacts different parts of our learning. So procedural, procedural memory um, tends to consolidate during REM sleep, and procedural memory is like the knowing how, so those kind of unconscious parts of learning, learning um, how to do things in terms of uh, motor activities and motor skills. Um, and then uh, declarative memory, so the knowing sort of what, um, is more from uh, from the non-REM sleep. And so depending on sort of how you shorten the night or where one's losing one's sleep, it can have different impacts on your overall learning. Um, students with um, higher grades report more sleep, earlier bedtimes on school nights, redu reduce weekend delays of sleep schedule than students with lower grades. And so um, there are kind of more and more studies coming out where they're um, directly correlating the number of hours of sleep with GPAs, and so um, that there does seem to be a pretty direct link between uh, hours of sleep and success uh, academically. And this just isn't, isn't just in the um, United States. So this is a kind of cross-cultural um, problem. So this is a study um, looking at Italian high school students that showed that adolescents reported a reduced academic performance, mainly explained by attention problems in the classroom. And they, they tend to have more regular bedtimes and sleep less than their peers who do not complain about attention problems. So this isn't a, just a problem here. Um, it's a problem um, everywhere. So multiple studies have shown that increasing daytime sleepiness as a consequence of poor quality or duration of sleep can seriously impair students' cognitive functioning and behavioral performance. <laughs> it's clearly linked to um, sleep habits and daytime sleepiness level. And we've also seen this in studies of, of younger kids looking at sort of just poor quality sleep and um, almost obstructive sleep apnea. So what we don't want to see is this, um, students falling asleep at their desk. So drowsy driving. <clears throat> so daytime sleepiness and fatigue are associated with an increased rate of motor vehicle crashes. So in a 2010 study of high school students with driver's licenses, they found that a fifth complained of poor sleep quality, two-thirds complained of daytime sleepiness, 40% reported sleepiness while driving, and 11% reported having a motor vehicle accident in which sleepiness was the main cause. So you know, there's a lot of efforts and um, important <clears throat> education around drunk driving, but sleepy driving is really important as well. And one of the... Um, Places in Kentucky where they actually changed school start times, they were able to decrease um, the rate of motor vehicle accidents by 16.5%, while at the same time, those surrounding communities, the rate increased by 7%. So it had a pretty significant impact on sort of drowsy driving. So um, this one says, Jeremy, get up. And then sort of this unknown voice in the background says, let him sleep. And the mom says, what? The poor kid was up past midnight studying, but 
The schools expect them to be in class all day, do homework all night, and then be back at it bright and early the next morning. Studies show that teenagers need, need, 10 to 12 hours of sleep every night to be healthy. And mom says, I read that. Well then, cut him some slack. The world won't end if he misses a class today. Good point. One hour later, the kid wakes up. He says, I'm late. I know you were exhausted, so you just let me sleep. If you won't listen to your body, I will. And so what we know is that, you know, that adolescents don't want to just miss out on school in the morning, but they do need that extra sleep. So let's just talk a little briefly about some um, sleep problems that we see during this stage. Um, sleep problems are common during adolescence. Um, there's a high prevalence, 25 to 40% um, during this time. And the two most common problems are insomnia and delayed sleep phase syndrome. So insomnia um, can be sort of a short-term or transient problem. Um, something bad happens, there's some stressful event that's going on, you go through a couple week period where you have difficulty sleep, and then it passes. Um, but the more um, concerning type is uh, long-term or chronic sleep. And this is sort of repeated difficulty with sleep initiation, duration, um, consolidation that uh, occurs when you're giving them the chances to sleep appropriately. So this isn't in the setting of them spending the time texting or playing video games or, um, or, doing, other, or doing homework, but that they're in bed at an appropriate time and they're still having a hard time falling asleep. And that it um, leads to daytime functional impairment for the child or the family. So the prevalence is different in various studies, um, anywhere from sort of 4.4% to 14%. Um, <coughs> so there are really good treatments for insomnia um, that don't necessarily involve medications, but really um, look at changing the maladaptive sleep behaviors and changing the negative sleep cognitions, so cognitive behavioral treatments. And so what those include are things like sleep restriction. So sleep restriction is looking at just how much sleep they're getting a night and then only allowing them that much time to sleep and then building it back into their schedule. Um, stimulus control, which is sort of really helping them associate the bed only with sleep. And so this is not letting them sort of use their computer, or watch TV in bed, do anything else but sleep in bed. Um, and having them get out of bed if they're having a hard time falling asleep. Relaxation training. Most of what's been done in terms of relaxation training is um, what's called progressive muscle response and um, allowing um, them to learn how to control different parts of their um, bodies to relax. Um, but there's some research going on now looking at other forms of relaxation like visualization. Um, and cognitive reframing, which is sort of changing those negative thoughts, like I'm never going to be able to sleep, and sort of teaching them that um, that, that actually starts to uh, become a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy. Uh, the other common uh, sleep difficulty uh, during uh, this time is what's called delayed, delayed sleep phase syndrome. And so we know that all adolescents have a bit of a sleep uh, phase delay, but this is in excess of what one would expect based on um, their age. And their, um, and their schedule. Um, it's significantly delayed by two or more hours beyond the desired bedtime, and it conflicts with activities during daily living. So these are kids that are so tired in the morning that they cannot get up and go to school. So they're going to school only half the day, or uh, arriving later in the day, or just totally not functional in the morning. So this is different from insomnia, though, in that if you let them go to bed when they want to go to bed and wake up when they want to go wake up, they're getting a reasonable amount of sleep. And so um, that's how you sort of distinguish those two. 
So this is a multi-component disorder. It looks like it does have some genetic features to it, so we see it more commonly in families and obviously some psychosocial factors. Um, but the nocturnal melatonin secretion does appear to be delayed, um, so that, that it's even later than one would expect for their age. Um, and there's often some hints of this. So these are kids, when they're even younger, seven or eight-year-olds, who look to sort of push that bedtime later and later. They seem to be sort of what we would call night owls, where they want to go to bed later, even at a younger f stage. Um, but obviously, there's psychosocial factors involved as well, academic, family, and social issues. Um, so the way we treat that is that we have to shift the sleep timing. Um, and then the key to making it work is um, to maintain a strict and consistent sleep-wake schedule, which means that once they um, start and shifted their schedule, they can't start to sleep in on the weekends um, because then they'll just end up back where they were. Um, so you can shift the sleep-wake cycle a couple of different ways. The sort of less dramatic way is by sort of making the bedtime earlier by 15 minutes every few nights and 15 minutes earlier. Um, um, and then stopping as they're having a hard time falling asleep and restarting as they kind of get used to that new stage. The more sort of dramatic way is what's called a phase delay, and this is for kids who really have a huge shift, so they're going to bed at 4 or 5 in the morning, um, waking up in the afternoon, and then what you do is sort of march the clock forward rather than backwards. So that's really sleep disruptive to the entire family because then we're saying you have to go to bed at 6 o'clock in the morning and wake up at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and then you have to wake up at 6.30 in the morning, and you walk your whole way around the clock. So at some point they're going to bed at noon and waking up at 10. Um, and so, um, so that's pretty challenging, um, and it takes a couple of weeks to get there. Um, so, um, so that's not to be um, gone in lightly. So, this sort of sums the, sums up where we are. So, um, some people talk about um, adolescent sleep and development being the perfect storm. So, it's the crashing of lots of different things together. So. There's this bioregulation pressure that leads to some delay in going to sleep based on both the circadian phase delay as well as the slow rise of sleep pressure. Then there's psychosocial pressures that lead to delays in going to sleep. So this bedtime autonomy, which I didn't spend so much time talking about. And so um, kids, even in their teens who have a bedtime, tend to sleep more than um, adolescents who have no bedtime. So if we just leave it up to them to sort of set their own clock, they tend not to go to sleep as early as, um, and do as well during the day as, as kids who have a bit of a bedtime set by their parents. Um, academic pressure, so homework, um, other things that are keeping them up late. Um, and sort of within there, I sort of think, especially in this um, community sort of sports pressures, things that sort of affect them, that they are obligations that keep them up late. Um, screen time and social networking all sort of push bedtime later. And then we're sort of pushing back by asking them to wake up earlier and earlier um, with these sort of early school start times. Um, and what's important about that is that, that often the school start times are earlier than they are for younger kids who don't have that same sort of push. Um, so late to bed, early to rise, overall they end up with sort of the shorter sleep where they really need sort of this longer sleep that we would see at the top. So what are our roles in this then? Um, so ask, evaluate, educate, and advocate. Um, so 
even though we're talking mostly about adolescence, I would argue that this um, is something that starts sort of way back before that in terms of establishing good sleep starting from early childhood. And so even uh, during those first early visits, really focusing on sort of appropriate sleep and asking a lot of questions about sleep to ensure that the family realizes that this is an important part for the overall health and development of their children. And so in infants and babies, sort of asking about sort of where are they sleeping, sort of talking about cold sleeping and the dangers associated with co-sleeping, um, finding out if there's a sleep routine and a schedule. And so, you know, if there's no schedule at this point, it's really going to be hard to establish that later on. Um, what do parents do when the child wakes during the night? Are there any medical problems? And then asking them how their parents are sleeping, because we know that can have a big impact both on the parents' mood and their ability to interact with their kids, but even on sort of depression and sleep later on. Um, toddlers, same kinds of things. What time does a child go to bed and get up? What's the bedtime routine? Where does the child sleep? Are they able to get asleep on their own? Um, what happens as they're going to bed? And then starting to ask about nighttime arousal. So toddlerhood is when we start to see things like um, night terrors. And what happens then? Is the child napping? Um, encouraging napping until kid, naps until kids are about three, because that's really important for consolidation of learning and memory as well during this time. Um, and how's the child functioning during the day? Can we get a sense of the quality of the sleep? Um, during um, childhood, this is when we're starting to see um, more electronics and things like that appearing in the sleep environment. So we talked about the number of adolescents that have TVs and other me media devices, electronic devices in the bedroom. This starts way earlier. So, um, so certainly as we start to find out, uh, ask the questions, the number of younger kids that have TVs in the room is pretty astounding. Um, starting to ask about snoring. Um, I ask about snoring all the time, even if they don't offer it. Um, some parents don't realize that that is a sign that the sleep quality might not be good. Um, is there sleep refusal fears? So this is when we start to see other things start to kind of impact sleep um, and uresis. And then teenagers asking if there's a regular bedtime. Um, they should have a bedtime at this hour. It shouldn't be whenever I get my work done, if I don't have practice. There should be a goal of when they're going to sleep, what time they wake up. Um, is there a routine before bed? And you know, is the routine that I play video games right until I fall asleep? Um, and then asking them if they're going to sleep really late, kind of what's causing the problem? Is it homework? Is it socializing? What are there? What are ways that we can kind of intervene? Is the team napping? Um, so during childhood, between six and twelve years of age, kids almost never nap. Um, that has to do with how your circadian clock is working, and we don't have that sort of dip. Um, once kids get into adolescence, they can nap again. And actually, napping can be a good uh, way of getting some restorative sleep in. It doesn't have to be negative as long as it's not interfering with falling asleep at night. Electronics in the bedroom, after school activities, are they complaining that they're feeling tired? Um, but there's also sleep health education um, right from the beginning. So if we think of kind of primary prevention, these are uh, interventions aimed at preventing the development of sleep deprivation. Um, so this is parental education and community education right from the start. Uh, secondary prevention, diagnosing and treating existing sleep disorders at the early stages. So this isn't sort of once they're already having severe um, sleep phase delays or um, insomnia, but sort of trying to catch things early. So if we see those um, eight and nine-year-olds who seem like they're pushing and want their bedtime later, sort of trying to evaluate that early rather than waiting for them to sort of end up in that hard place. And then um, tertiary prevention, which is reducing the negative impacts of, of these sleep disorders and the reduced sleep. So trying to find other ways to sort of ameliorate the difficulties. 
But as pediatricians, we can also be advocates. And so um, we can um, advocate to our community about the scientific information, evidence-based rationales, guidance, and support, um, you know, PTA, school boards, um, that tell them that the loss of sleep that's happening um, at this stage of life is having huge impacts on sort of overall kind of health and well-being of our adolescents. Um, and that uh, middle and high school st schools should aim for a start time no earlier than 8.30 to allow kids to get a sufficient amount of sleep at this age. So it says, please excuse Josh's tardiness. The American Academy of Pediatrics has recommended a later start to the school day for teens. And the teacher said, you wrote this, didn't you? And he says, I did not, I swear. <laughs> And so I'm hoping I was leaving time so that we could have a little bit of a conversation about sort of how we want to do some advocacy um, within this community, which isn't doing such a good time, job in terms of school start times, where we know there is a lot of pressure on um, students in the evenings, as well as in the early mornings um, that sort of shorten sleep. Show me, of course. <laughs> So um, I had read one study a while ago, and I don't remember the details, that actually um, had a positive effect on limited caffeine. So first thing in the morning before school, something like a half cup or a cup, improved grades, improved alertness, and all this. Stuff. But it was a limited amount of caffeine. I don't know if you saw that. Or I didn't see that. Mostly, I saw lots of negative studies about caffeine and that it becomes a bit of a slippery slope in terms of thinking that that's what you can do instead of getting sufficient sleep, which it doesn't. Um, sort of ameliorate. I think one of the points in that article was, in the meantime, while the schools are not doing what's appropriate, <laughs> yeah, what do you do? Well, I'm curious if there's been any geographic studies. So being someone who grew up in the Midwest and that has lived on both coasts, it's always made me crazy about um, television primetime. So in the Midwest, primetime is 7 to 10. And when I grew up, 10 o'clock, the news came on from 10 to 11 was kind of my bedtime routine. That's when I would go to bed. On the coast, you're watching that night, that 10 o'clock show until 11 o'clock just to be ready at this water cooler to talk about it. And then you wouldn't start your sleep routine until 11 or 12. And I'm curious as to if the studies have looked at that difference to make a difference in or sleep patterns in the United States. I haven't um, seen that. And it's interesting that you say that about the Midwest, because what I noticed when we were, so before we came here, we were in, um, in Ohio for six years. And what I noticed is that the kids tended to go to bed later there rather than earlier, um, where I had sort of grown up on the East Coast. And I sort of, after a couple of years of wondering what was going on, decided it's because um, they're sort of at the farther end of the um, time zone and it gets dark much later there and I think that sort of thing that sets you to kind of fall asleep a little earlier um, that sort of very regularly I would find that kids would have bedtimes even younger kids sort of 9.30 or 10 which I found sort of shocking but I do think that the fact that it stays light later there sort of had that kind of an impact on it but the television is kind of an interesting theory too um, oh, I think that every time I've been involved in this conversation with uh, various schools in this country and other countries, it, I'm struck with how difficult it is to advocate for a later school start because the many people won't argue with you on the biology because it's, you know, you're the expert and you're presenting the evidence, but then you get all this stuff about, well, we can't get the sports done and well, we can't get all this stuff. And I'm wondering if 
there's been a look, look across cultures because so you're saying in this setting we have high academic pressures, high sports pressures. We it's going to be very hard to suddenly change the culture that sports can now end at eight or whatever. So I don't know if if there's been any thoughts about that or if you have any thoughts about how to tackle that. You know we have fixed numbers of hours in a day, obviously, but we have a lot of various cultural demands on what these kids should be doing. I mean, I think that obviously they're not going to argue about the biology piece, but I think the argument of not that it's just affecting their grades, but that it's affecting their health overall is, yeah. the, is the sort of argument, because there is sort of more and more research really sort of suggesting that it is having these bigger impacts on sort of obesity risks and all the things that are associated with that. And then the impacts on mood, sort of more and more research with that, and especially, you know, and the, and, and the driving. Um, but this, you know, they certainly see it across different cultures. There are a lot of studies um, in Japan and Korea where there's these huge academic pressures um, and a lot of um, school at night to sort of get even further ahead um, where they're starting to see some of these um, problems more and more, too, as they're kind of having that pressure on on students as well. So I think it is sort of um, sort of forcing the hand in terms of, you know, is it worth them sort of being up till nine to play that much more hockey when we know that, um, that it's having this kind of an impact on their sort of mood, behavior, and, and learning? I'm interested in the, the graph that you showed at the beginning that's coming out next month in pediatrics of the drift yeah. over the years. Yeah. Um, is that because we're leading busier lives? Is that because we're scheduled up more? So, um, so the authors um, sort of postulated a little bit in terms of why they think that drift is getting worse. And certainly, yeah, the electronics, um, that exposure, the um, yes, people being busier. They had some questions about its relation with obesity um, in that direction, which was um, which didn't make sense to me. But I think the the um, you know that that is the kind of guessing that people are sort of busier, the demands are higher. But also, you know, the electronics and the media um, and people sort of feeling like they need to multitask all the time and perhaps becoming less efficient, um, you know, certainly is having an impact on it. Dr. Paul. Yeah, I also wonder, too, to what extent they, at first I was going to ask more about economic pressures, but I think to some extent, you know, I think about the uh, sort of grown-ups in the milieu, parents and teachers. I, mean, I would expect that there's also a lot of pressure from the parents who need to get to work, or um, teachers who want to start their day at a certain time so that, if, particularly if they're after school helping or coaching or something, that their day ends so they can get home to their families. I was sort of thinking about the whole shift, like for me, for a school break, and I bet my teen is pretty much still in bed sleep right now, um, is, um, is the extent to which, you know, I was sort of thinking about what if school started at nine? For example, and you know, during his, you know, my kids' teenage years, or thinking about the, the adults who coach them after school, pushing things later and later, and they start to be concerned about, you know, getting home to their families as well. What, 
what are some of the other resistances to moving this based on the grown-ups in these kids' lives? I think, I mean, I think that is a big piece of it, sort of how is it impacting everybody else's schedule. Um, there's been some discussion about, well, the older kids need to be out early for part-time jobs, to watch their younger siblings, to, um, there's a lot about bus schedules, um, and how is that going to work in terms of older kids and younger kids, depending on the community. Is it a community where everyone goes on the bus together? Is it that um, there's sort of loops of the bus so that they take the older kids first and then come back and get the younger kids? Most typically, that's the system. It's that the older kids go earlier, and then they get the younger kids. Um, and so it's a discussion about whether we should be flip-flopping that. And we're not talking necessarily about starting at, you know, at 10, but that you know, by delaying things by 45 or 60 minutes, is it really going to have such a big impact on the other end? And with adolescents who are able to get onto the school bus by themselves and get to school um, versus you know, having the younger kids. Where we lived in Ohio, actually, although our kids didn't go to the public school, the elementary started at 9. And I thought, well, how would we ever manage that? Um, whereas if the adolescents start at that time, they can be left by themselves and get, you know, and get to school. Whereas you know, the younger kids are usually up and ready for school earlier. I believe I may have a question from uh, Southern Vermont Medical Center in Bennington. Can we entertain that, please? Absolutely, Ray. Come on up. Come on up, Southern Vermont. Hello. Hi. 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 Hi.
encourage them to get data. Yeah. Because, the, I mean, if schools start publishing data, I mean, having less accidents is pretty compelling. Right, thank you, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And also talking with your colleagues and finding out the practical things that we've right. overcome. So, so we, we came out of this residency and sort of divvied up the field, and I went 11 and above, and Nina liked to stay below five years of age. But but she just didn't have less than that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Have a good day.